title of my sermon today is The Milk and Meat of the Word. The Milk and Meat of the Word. You know, over the years, over the years, we have heard on occasion individuals saying that they're tired of hearing only milk in sermons. And they want more meat of the word. In some cases, some people have even left the church of God to link up with other groups where they feel they're getting more meat. Still others, perhaps even within our fellowship, seeking to be titillated with, quote, exciting new truth, unquote, can bring literature from other organizations and pass it on to innocent new people in the church who are excited, just being excited, learning about the fundamental truths that are so remarkable in Scripture. You know, one of the primary concerns that such people iterate is in the living church of God, sometimes they said they're being fed only milk whereas on other websites and in literature of other organizations, some of which claim to be the Church of God, they feel they're getting real meat. This is not a new issue. I remember many years ago at a ministerial conference in San Diego where one gentleman took exception to a request from Dr. Meredith. Dr. Meredith's request at that time, as I remember it, was that if ministers had new ideas about doctrine, Before they taught such or spread things around in an avalanche of tapes, they would share these ideas with headquarters first. And Dr. Meredith, to the frustration of the other gentleman, based himself on scripture. And he turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or quoted it, I believe, by memory, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, where Paul, in an impassioned plea, the Corinthian church stated, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, making the same decisions based upon the Holy Scriptures. Now, Some in the past have accused Mr. Meredith of being a dictator. But that incident proved to me, rather than being a dictator, he was a man who exercised mercy, even to those who set themselves against him. My first and maybe a little too carnal reaction would have been to send the gentleman packing. But Dr. Meredith calmly asked him to speak with him later. But the man was not willing to listen. And a few months later, started his own little work, probably accepting tithes and sending out tapes, but doing nothing else. Many rallied around him. And in so doing, they separated themselves from where the work was actually happening. And I would ask, who is the beneficiary of such? Why do people follow such ideas? Sometimes they find the teaching is more exciting. Some claim to have a new understanding, a new truth. In fact, most of these new teachings were nothing but speculations about prophetic items, which is what they wanted to hear. They were a willing market, ready to pay with their tithes for someone to teach them what they wanted to hear. I think the Bible calls it itching ears. And they began to ascribe importance to speculations about scripture far beyond what is possible. And they ignored the vast amounts of scripture which teach something else in addition to prophecy. Things which are more challenging, things which are more difficult. We know that about a third of the Bible is prophetic. And it's important and we must know it. But we must be careful what we say that it means. Prophecy often gives us a general trend or pattern. We know in general what to expect. But the details are often not so specific that it enables us to make very specific statements that relate them to a modern event. Now, why do I mention that incident? 
Well, it seems in the past 44 years that I've been a part of the church, I've seen so many interested in speculation that they claim to be deeper truth and deeper understanding. And then they pay little attention to such other matters as developing Christian character and supporting the preaching of the gospel to the world. Because they find that boring. That's milk. To whom should we listen? If you turn to Luke chapter 21, Luke the 21st chapter, and verse 8, Luke 21, Luke 21 and verse 8, we read here the words of Jesus Christ. And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawing near. Therefore, do not go after them. Now, when Christ spoke these words, he was saying that ministers would arise teaching that Jesus indeed was the Christ, but their particular teaching would still be such that it would lead people astray. They would have a message of their interpretation of things, but they would not be teaching the complete gospel or the complete purpose for our lives. The Apostle Paul was inspired to give a warning that Luke also recorded when he was inspired by God to write the book of Acts. Over in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, Acts 20 and verse 29, the Apostle Paul, and God inspired him to write this. He said, "For and this is a prophecy, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And that's a warning. And he says in verse 30, also from among yourselves, Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now, if we have in the days just after Paul's death, false ministers coming into the flock that you had to warn people about, then they would not on the surface be easy to recognize. If you are a sheep out in the pasture, in a flock. It's sheep are wont to be in a flock. And a wolf jaunts onto the pasture, or the corral. It would be noticed. Even a sheep, who aren't known for their intellectual capacity, <laughs> would know that the fur, the eyes, the teeth, the ears, do not constitute a sheep. It would be noticeable, and they would react with fear. But if we are warned that these false ministers would appear as sheep, what is Paul getting at? Well, if they were overtly at the time teaching the Trinity, the Sunday observance, that the law and the holy days were done away, it would have been easy to recognize in those days. We know from Scripture and from history, whether it's Gibbons or Durant or Owen Chadwick, that the early church in the first century, even after the days of the apostles, in the time when these false ministers were working, were keeping the Sabbath and the holy days and teaching the law. And yet there were false ministers doing that. Thus, the warning to the church is not just about ministers bringing in overtly pagan ideas. The warning is, in fact, to be aware of those who claim to be a part of the church, but are looking overtly to subtly draw people away with wrong doctrine. That starts out subtly. And those who would follow speculative Ideas alone, and those who have done so in our age, have been effectively sidelined from the work. And that only benefits Satan in his efforts 
to stop the preaching of the gospel to the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is a very important place for prophecy. It provides that critical outline to general events and the order in which we can expect them. And we are expected by God to know it. But we often don't have enough details to identify dates, to predict when Jesus will return, or identify people who are prophesied to play specific roles, like the two witnesses or the false prophet, etc. These things we don't know. We cannot know ahead of time until God allows it to be revealed. And sometimes people make new doctrines by associating even holy days with events and make, making claims beyond proving them from scripture. One such notion was started by another individual that the first resurrection occurs in Pentecost. When we know the Bible, when you look at it in its entire context, associates that event with and only with the Feast of Trumpets. Others go to great lengths to show we shouldn't keep Passover at the beginning of the 14th, but the beginning of the 15th. And they make all kinds of connections, but not based on the Bible for proof. Always speculating, stating as fact their ideas, but ignoring the clear weight of Scripture taken together. And in so doing, their practice violates the clear teaching of the Old and the New Testament on the date of Passover, as well as the example that Jesus Christ himself left us. Things which are fact and not speculation. You know, Christ kept the correct Passover, replete with a lamb, as the Bible tells us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that. Mark 14, verse 12, for example, tells us, you know, uh, uh, on the day when it was customary to slaughter the Passover lamb, the disciples went to Christ and said, where do you want us to eat the Passover? And we know he kept it prior to the first day of unleavened bread, 24 hours prior. So we know when he kept it. There's no doubt. The Bible is clear. But people believe certain ideas. They look at them apart from Scripture, and they get deceived. All these such things, some people call meat. I want you to notice what else the Apostle Paul stated over in 2 Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. He makes this very strong statement to Timothy. This is like an officer giving an order to a subordinate, which is exactly what it was. And he says in verse 1, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready, in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from truth and be turned aside to fables. That was a prophecy of the, that God gave through the Apostle Paul. The church of God is to preach the word, as the sermonette so well pointed out. To preach it with zeal and vigor and continuously until it rings in every mountaintop and echoes in every valley. And we are to do it with all the strength we can as long as we can. And when we can't do it anymore, then the work is over. But some want things that are more thrilling. Please beware, lest anyone thinks the meat of the word is exciting new truth and speculation and new understandings. Nothing could be further from the truth. Brethren, beware, lest we are turned aside, because we are deluded into thinking the meat of the word is composed of new and exciting truths. 
That is not what the Bible says. What then is referred to as the milk and meat of the word? It's a critical question, and we need to be able to answer that if we are to defend ourselves against false teaching and vicious wolves that are still prophesied to come. First of all, I should say that the use in the King James Version of the Bible of the word milk and meat, a Bible version that was published in 1611. In 1611, the word meat was used in English as a general term for solid food of any kind. It did not just mean animal flesh. It could mean eggs or bread or string beans or in the case of the Scots, oatmeal. But thus in the King James Version, in the New King James and more recent translations, we use the expression solid food instead of meat because that's the intent of the term. If you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 and verse 6, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 6, we read here something about Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Paul is saying here, as he also says in another place, in verse 6 of Hebrews 5, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, that is when Christ was here on the earth as a human being, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. I'd just like to pause there for a moment. Jesus Christ prayed not to go through the crucifixion. You know that. He prayed desperately to the point where he sweat blood. Have you ever prayed and not got the answer you wanted? Jesus Christ did. So we shouldn't feel that God's not hearing us. But Christ got the answer, not the one he was looking for. But he dutifully said, yes, sir. And he went ahead. But it says he was heard because of his godly fear. Now, I don't refer to it very often, but in the New International Version, that phrase, and was heard by a, because of his godly fear, it's very well translated because it says he was heard because of his reverent submission. To be heard by God, to be really heard, we need to be respectful and submissive to our God and Savior following his way of life. That's what gives us his ear, his full ear. That's what that's saying. In verse 8, although he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In other words, he's not the author of eternal salvation to those who refuse to obey him. Verse 10 called by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, what's he saying to this people to whom he's writing? He's saying, you don't, it's hard to teach you stuff because you don't understand. You're dull of hearing. Well, if you go on to verse 12, he then goes on, he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. You need to have come, you've come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unscared, unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food or the meat, as the King James talks about it, belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use, by reason of use of the word, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
Now here Paul is making a statement to the Hebrews. And it was a statement of correction, and he was using Christ as an example for us to learn something critical to our eternal survival. And these people had been called into the church likely for some time. Most to the people he was writing to were likely baptized, yet something was missing. What was it they were on? Why was it they were unable to teach others? From what Paul is saying here, they had to be taken right back to the very basics again. And the situation they were in was because they were not obeying him. They were not applying the truth in their day-to-day life. Now, for those who say the meat of the word is a constant diet of new truth or new understandings, this scripture contains a problem. You see, they needed to restore the very basics of the teachings of the church. How to keep the Sabbath, how to keep the holy days, how to avoid strife, how to avoid argument. They were not seeing that big picture. And the problem was they did not have experience or had not been practicing the use of God's word to guide their day-to-day life. That's what he is really implying here. They were not using it to discern good and evil through the use of God's word. And God's word is the only way we can discern good and evil. It is the only absolute arbiter of truth. Note the end of verse 14 again. You know, God's word is given to us as a means of being able to distinguish right from wrong, appropriate from inappropriate. It guides us in regulating our lives day to day and our struggle to overcome the pulls of Satan. It helps us recognize what is satanic and what is not. You know, in bringing out here that those who still need milk had not developed or of not taking the time or the effort to use God's word to guide how they should live. One of the critical questions we should ask in this whole matter is what criteria or which criteria will God use to determine if you or me as an individual in God's church are to be granted eternal life? What is the syllabus against which he checks that question? There is no more important question to us. Will he make the determination of your knowledge of prophecy or your ability to understand tons and tons of new truth and understanding the plethora of conflicting teachings about the Bible out there in Satan's world? Or will he, on the other hand, base his judgment on something else? What criteria, which criteria does God use to judge whether we live forever or die forever? Verse 14, Hebrews 5. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The term full age or mature comes from the Greek word teleos, It would be spelled T-E-L-E-I-O-S in Greek. And in other places in the Bible, it's translated as perfect. Now, I'll use my wife as a wife. She's not quite perfect yet. But um, I'll use her as an example. Uh, She likes buying cantaloupe. Now, when I was a child growing up, I grew up in the eastern province of Nova Scotia and I don't know what it was, but we didn't have very good cantaloupe there. My mother would often buy it and had a very, very hard time convincing me to eat it. And uh, when my wife brought home cantaloupe and put it in front of me, I must must say I was um, a little bit distressed. But it was very good. But she has a secret, you see. Now, I don't really like to go shopping with her when she's shopping for cantaloupe. If I am in the store, I'll go somewhere else because she picks them up and she sniffs them on the end. 
And apparently, there's a certain fragrance that you can detect that indicates if a cantaloupe is ripe and ready for use, sweet inside. Now, if it is, it's very sweet, very delicious, a very different cantaloupe than what I experienced as a youth. But this word teleos means fully ripened, ready, ready almost in perfection. Notice verse 1 of Hebrews 6. It says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, teleos, not laying again, not repeating all the time the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. These are all critical truths. But once you know that, there's something you need to do with it. To become teleos. Those who are mature and spiritually developed. Who are those? who start to develop this mature characteristic that God seems to place great stress upon. Well, from the context of Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 6, and from the flow of the text, God is desiring that people to whom God has given his knowledge, his ability, his Holy Spirit, he expects them then to exercise and use this knowledge and ability and his truth, the Bible, that he's opened your mind to understand for the purpose of building righteous character. Now, sometimes when people get hung up on a biblical phrase like meal per meat, they fail to recognize that in other parts of the Bible, God says exactly the same thing using different words, such is the case with 1 John. Let us compare these scriptures uh, perhaps a bit more clearly, and to see what is being referred to by the meat of the word. And this is the same problem that Paul's addressing that John, near the end of his life, addresses. So let's turn over to 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, the second chapter. He sees the same problem here. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, that is, puts it before God, puts it before God's way of life. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And we ask, who rules the world? And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. John is here telling these people that the most important thing in life is to do the will of the Father and act positively on the knowledge we are given by God. And he outlines a lot of what this means in the book of 1 John. Notice verse 24. He said, therefore... Let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. If that truth that was given to you is leading you. And this is the promise that he has promised us. Eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing, and that anointing is the giving of God's spirit, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone should teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. In other words, you will live the life that Christ wants us to live. And so we can see that from this, that people who are called were to take the basics of the truth, the basics of the truth that we learn when God, by a miracle, opens our mind, and then live by these things faithfully, learning to abide 
and the way of life God outlines. Now, there were those who were clearly trying to deceive the early church. John mentions this over and over. False individuals who appeared to be faithfully keeping the Sabbath and the holy days. In fact, in 3 John, the apostle speaks about an individual who was actually succeeding in gaining control of a local church and putting out true members. But John goes on, however, to show that we do not need to be deceived. Indeed, and this we need to take seriously, when you read the scriptures, it is very clear that we are held accountable if we allow ourselves to be deceived. You know, the sermonette says what we are asked to do is not easy. We are to struggle with a zeal and a passion. And it is a struggle sometimes. But God holds us accountable for the treasure he has given us. And sometimes this world wants us to take things lightly and casually. God doesn't take this project he has called us to be part of casually. The anointing there is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And this gives us understanding. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding. And I'll use a geometry phrase here. If and only if we use it and try to obey God. And that's very important. Note verse 20 of First John chapter 2. He says here, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So hence the Apostle Paul, in this section in Hebrews 5, stated that solid food belongs to those who will use their mind, who will use the Holy Spirit that's been placed into them, and evaluate what they are learning in the scriptures to discern good and evil. We are to use it to make choices. Life is a set of choices. In other words, Paul refers to the meat of the word as the capacity of a member in whom God's spirit dwells to use the law of God and the teachings of scripture to make right choices. They compare what they hear and see in life situations and various circumstances into which they can be involved, and they think and act in accordance with the direction God gives through his law and his scriptures. And thus they avoid sin. And thus they avoid death. In the process, we develop the character God wants. That's what he must see in us. And applying the solid food of truth, they do not look for a way around the law. They don't look for a justification to break the Sabbath or to violate some other law. They do not look for devious ways out of a problem, but consider what is right and wrong and do what is right. I remember Mr. Armstrong one time discussing character, and he gave an elegant definition of character. And he said, if I can quote him, I'm not sure if this is an exact quote, but character, he said, is knowing right from wrong and making the choice to do what is right, no matter how hard it is. That's character. Searching the scriptures. Praying for guidance is the approach of a person who is no longer just accepting the milk of the word, but is ingesting the meat of the word, the intention. Now, there are some who, upon hearing sermons about the importance of building God's character or overcoming the challenge of sin in the world, feel it's boring or repetitive and want something a little more exciting. But as to those, in particular, that God directs these words of caution from Paul and John, you know, Paul continues his statement from Hebrews 6, verse 1 and 2, and he describes what is meant by milk, as we've read. 
in actual fact, the idea is continuous. Actually, right through, there's no chapter divisions or verse divisions in the original text. And uh, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 5 for a moment, Hebrews 5 and verse 12, Hebrews 5 and verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk, not solid food. You're, you're back to where you started. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, as we read. Now, the point that Paul is making in that section of scripture is he's not speaking about individuals who were not ready for a more complex understanding of prophecy or new truth. Rather, it was all about those who were falling away from the truth due to a failure to implement and practice what they had already been taught. They were forgetting and neglecting basic truths such as repentance and faith, the meaning of baptism, what it represented, what that contract meant, that God takes it seriously. And all the, the other issues that we go through and the other true doctrines that we have. In fact, he goes on to say that someone who ignores the fundamental teachings of truth and turns away is at risk of even losing God's spirit. And then there is no further coming back. Notice Hebrews 6 verse 3. And this we will to do if God permits, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Jesus Christ is not going to be crucified a second time. When members fall away, sometimes people leave for various reasons or pressures. and You know, they, they haven't really given it up. There's various pressures on them. God understands that and he's very merciful. But sometimes people leave and they throw it away and they lose God's spirit. And then there is no way back. There's no will to come back. The teaching that Paul mentions in the list of scriptures in Hebrews 5 and 6 provide the basis for a Christian to understand what God's calling and the gospel is all about. Paul is saying that from the basic understanding, we are obligated to go on to achieve teleos, per perfection, maturity. In other words, to become the kind of being that God hopes we'll become. The kind of being he can convert to a spirit being upon the sounding of the seventh trumpet, be it our resurrection or our change. And this concept, concept of teleos, of ripening into what we are intended to become, is used in many other scriptures. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, Colossians the third chapter, and verse 12, it says, therefore, as the elect of God, and I hope we really appreciate what that phrase means, the elect, specially selected of God, not, by, not picked by Jesus Christ, but by God the Father himself. And each one of you have been personally selected by the emperor of the universe. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Teleos. And that's what God wants to see in us. That is the meat of the word. 
This love that we are to develop is the mind of God. It's applying the law of God. You cannot have love if you don't apply God's law. Godly love is only through the application of God's law in our heart. Showing a willingness to surrender to his will and to obey him. And in that state of obedience, do what we ought to do to live a right way of life, to be merciful, kind individuals, and support the work of the living God that we've been called to support. And so many of the false teachers, then and even now, have no work to speak of. They are in rebellion on that point. And that is the opposite of teleos. So how did Jesus himself refer to the meat or solid food of the word? What's our Savior's comment on it? Go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and verse 34. John 4 and verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food, my meat, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So, it is our meat. Jesus knew the meat of the word was to obey what God wants us to do without argument or question and to build the character that will bring us into alignment with the mind of God so he can give us eternal life and his family. The meat, you see, enriched Jesus Christ, helped him to understand even more deeply what it means to be obedient even under the negative pressure of Satan. And mankind operating under Satan's influence. And that's what Hebrews talked about in chapter 2. We read that earlier. Jesus became teleos, perfectly ripened, mature, fully perfected. And that's, no, he was perfect before. He was, he had no sin. But he says he learned, he became perfect through the things he suffered. And that same Jesus, God the Father will now use and is now using to bring many sons to glory. That's our destiny. That's why we were called. We're not called to be angels, as some would say. We are called to become God beings, members of the God family, the core of the gospel. Not some supposed new deep understanding on an obscure point that does not impact one's salvation. The application of the instructions and the laws of God and Christ that lead us to build the character that is essential to be in the kingdom is the meat of the word. Jesus clearly learned through what he experienced, even though he, like I say, had been with the Father from the beginning and God had created all things through him, he still learned. And according to Hebrews, he learned what it meant to obey under pressure. Even when obedience meant a torturous death. And this brings us to another key point. And that being a question, why does God allow his chosen ones, his called out ones, to experience trials and tests and difficulty? Why is it in the history of the church of God through the ages has not always been a very smooth ride? You know, if we can't answer that question, sometimes we don't understand the difference between the milk and meat of the word. As God's people, we can certainly look to God for blessings and support, but we do not live in isolation from the influence of Satan, the being who is currently still governing this planet. But, you know, we are only brought to teleos, spiritual maturity, through the opportunity to show God that we can stay loyal and faithful to him in good times and challenging times. And we must demonstrate that we value God's way of life and the great promise of the gospel more than the physical things of this life. Even Jesus, like I say, learned how to stay loyal and faithful and not give in to discouragement by the things he suffered. It was not easy for him. 
yet he did not give in to discouragement. You see, it is not just knowing the law, not just keeping the law superficially that brings one to teleos. Note Paul's comment in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews the 7th chapter. Hebrews 7 and verse 19 states here, For the law by and of itself made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Obedience draws us near to God. It breaks down the barriers that exist. Knowing the law does not bring us to that state of spiritual maturity, but it does reveal to us the standards. We are told in scripture that we would not know what sin is except for the law. And the law and the law of God alone tells us what is right and wrong. It is the standard of absolutes of right and wrong. The ceremonial law of the sacrifices only served to teach that we as sinful humans were in need of a savior and the price of sin. But we use the, but the use of God's law directs how we think and act and so in time eventually we start to think as God thinks. And that is teleos. Spiritual maturity. The application of the law through the indwelling of God's spirit reminds us of right and wrong, but we still have to make the choice of what to do. The meat is what we do with what we know to bring us into a state where God is sure about our conversion. Hence, we have our mind opened by God to understand his truth. And then if we act on that knowledge, after we've repented and are baptized, and forgiven, and then we can receive God's Holy Spirit, God then will continue to work with us if we are sincere and truly submitting. But God does place us under test to see how we'll act. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy the 8th chapter. And verse 2. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2. Here Moses was inspired to record, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God tested them. If you look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 16, he says, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. God tested them and he so tests us. First Peter, first Peter, chapter one, first Peter one and verse six. He, he says here. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. People that Peter was writing to were under severe trial, severe persecution. That the genuineness of your faith, why were they under trials? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, they will be rewarded. God needs to know how we'll behave. James chapter 1. James the first chapter. James 1 and verse 2. It says, My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into trials. And I must admit, I still have some difficulty with that one. But nonetheless, we, when we think about it, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let that patience have its perfect work. And that may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Telios, fully complete. In other words, God wants to know our will. And developing this will to obey God no matter what it will upset is the meat of the word. 
Look how God treated men in the past. You know, men like Job. Job was tested severely because God wanted him to be teleos, fully ripened. Job was an example of a person that God loved. But God knew that in his present state, he couldn't be resurrected in the first resurrection. God then perfected him because he loved him. But one thing we must know, although Job exercised great faith in trial, sometimes we make a mistake thinking that faith is only belief. James even says, you believe in God, good, so does Satan. He's very faithful in that point. He really knows God exists. He's seen him, he's met him, he's talked to him. There's no doubt in his mind. He has great faith in that. But God doesn't have very many good things to say about him. So what is the faith that God is looking for? It's not just belief. Faith that counts is faith that leads to obedience. And the Bible makes that point over and over again. Obedience to God is the barometer of faith. And this is showing the spiritual maturity, the, meat, the exercise of the meat of the word. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 17. Hebrews 11 says, verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who would have received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now Abraham just didn't believe in God. Abraham actually did something or was prepared to do something that proved to God he was obedient in the most serious matter. The trial to test Abraham's spiritual maturity, he passed. He would have put God first before the person he loved most on earth. Hebrews goes on to speak of many who are heroes of God, who in the end seem to do good in physical life, but then it goes on to speak of another group of faithful heroes who suffered martyrdom and persecution, including an allusion probably to the great prophet Isaiah, who according to tradition was sawn in half by King Manasseh. Notice Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. It says, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured. That doesn't sound pleasant. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging. Yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, were tempted were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made teleos apart from us. not be made perfect apart from us. This is a great truth that we are given. You know, for some, the final tests of spiritual maturity were very great and terrible. For some today, illness and death are tests. Will we remain loyal and not think that God has abandoned us? God did not abandon Isaiah. Isaiah will be resurrected. The great prophets that are mentioned here. He's not abandoned. But he was perfected. Staying faithful and remaining obedient to God and his law. Retaining a vision and understanding of the mission to each of us and the church as a whole. Is the application of the meat of the word. James chapter 2. James, the second chapter, verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with works? 
They are inseparable. And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. This is quite important that we understand and and, uh, grasp this. Because this is what James is really trying to clarify. And you see that a man is justified by works and not faith only. Belief isn't enough. Action on the belief is essential. John makes the same statement in 1 John 2.5 where he says, you know, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. The love of God is perfected in those who obey him, who actually do what they should do in good times and difficult times. And thus we see again and again the truth that we are expected and we're held accountable for living in accordance with the direction God has mercifully and miraculously provided us. And this is what the churches in the days of Paul were forgetting. And this is why he wrote what he did about the meat of the word. And it was recorded for us, so we would understand that. Paul also stresses this to the church at Colossae. If you go over to Colossians again in verse 1, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Colossians 1, verse 28. And it states here, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect, teleos, in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. You know, one of the key messages of the Apostle Paul to all the churches to whom he wrote was that making it into God's family takes work, it takes sacrifice, and it takes much effort and courage. And we must strive to bring ourselves in harmony with God's way of thinking and living. And that message is the meat of the word. And thus we see what this phrase that some false individuals twist really means. Paul also uses the phrase again in a message to the church at Corinth, a church that when he wrote this first letter was in real trouble and uh, would not have seemed to us as a converted people in many ways. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, he writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as a spiritual people, but as carnal. I mean, you guys have really drifted. As babes in Christ, you're just starting over again. I fed you with milk, not with solid food. I gave you the basics, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, because you're still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, You are carnal and behaving like mere men or unconverted people. What he's saying is you're not applying the word in your day-to-day life. The milk is the basic knowledge of the truth. The meat is the implementation of that knowledge. Paul was saying that because they were not overcoming sin, they were not able to have the nourishment of the solid food that God provides through the overcoming of the poles of this world and starting to live and think according to the laws of God and according to the direction of Scripture. Now, to some, exciting new doctrine or new twists on certain meanings is meat. But those who feel that way need to reflect on their conversion because they haven't understood the reason for our calling or the reason for the church. The very context of all the places where this phraseology is used, is always in reference to the meat or solid food resulting in the building of righteous character. The meat of the word is about struggling, overcoming the sins and pulls of this world, putting ourselves into total submission to God so we can realize teleos. We can become that nice-smelling cantaloupe 
and the required level of spiritual maturity that will enable us to be born into the family and kingdom of God. You know, when I, before I knew anything about the church, I was in the army, and I remember days and weeks and months could be spent in repetitive exercises and rigorous, difficult training. And sometimes the training can be rightly considered a trial. But, you know, through that effort, a commander will learn who is disciplined to endure, whatever the difficulty, in a good attitude, with a constant willingness to help the team. And it is on that soldier that a commander can depend. The one who might be good on parade, but no good anywhere else, and shirks it from his duty when things get difficult, that person is useless. And he needs to be discarded. Can't be used. He's a risk to everyone else. And so it is with us. With Jesus Christ as our commander. With God's plan, things are that way. The meat of the word is to do the will of our Father in heaven, just as it was with Jesus Christ. And what matters is not picky details or prophetic speculation when the, or when the tribulation is going to start. But as the sermonette said, will I be ready to stand solid? If the answer is no, then all the other questions are of no meaning. And we must not be concerned with saving our own skin from a tribulation. God will take care of us. We rather need to build the character that God has called us to build and to do the work of God. God looks after the rest. And we will know the other things when we need to know them. The bottom line is the truth represents hard work. Listening to titillating speakers or reading their writings and waxing about speculations on things that we really don't know and expounding is easy. That's really easy stuff. But our calling is not easy. It is hard work. Just as a soldier can experience months of hard training to prepare for a battle, so our work is hard. And we prepare to meet the criteria that God sets for us and expects us to meet. And this preparation of overcoming sin, living according to God's way of life, and submitting to the will of God is what our calling is about. Notice Romans chapter 7, as we conclude here. Romans, the seventh chapter, verse 21. Paul states this struggle with him. This is a great apostle. We've all read this. He says, I find the law that evil is present within me. There is a Satan wants to kill us. He wants to destroy us, but he can't. He's not allowed, but he'll try to get us to destroy ourselves and to bring ourselves under the judgment. He says, for I find a law that evil is present in me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, my mind. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I serve the law of God, with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, this is not a justification to keep sinning, as some would argue. But when he said, I serve the law of God with my mind, he meant I have to overcome this other pull. And God will give us the strength to do that. Paul knew what the key issue was. And he applied the meat of the word, and with the help of God, through his Holy Spirit, Paul, with great effort, overcame. Although his life ended in a test, he remained faithful in a good attitude, even though he was beheaded. But all this stuff about the meat of the word being some exciting new doctrine or new understandings, you know, it's all failed in the past. They show a lack of fundamental understanding of the scripture and of the calling we have. Finally, let's look at what Paul states about this, of what is really important. 
First Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians 13. Paul says in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, that character of God. Love isn't just the syrupy feeling. Love is the character of God. It's the application of his way of life. I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, can predict anything, even elections, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And though I have all faith, so I could move mountains, but have not love, I haven't built godly character, I am nothing. And I am nothing means he would not be resurrected in the first resurrection. He's saying that if he fails to inculcate the character of God revealed to us through God's law and the intent of that law, He was nothing. And if he was judged by God to be nothing, his end is a swift death in the lake of fire. But Paul understood that becoming teleos was the purpose of our calling and the true meat of the word. You know, perhaps Micah summed it up as we are close with that scripture. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 sums up the meat of the word here. Micah states, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to live according to his way of life, to love mercy, and to humbly walk with your God. That's the meat of the word. To act in accordance with God's law, and in so doing become a merciful person who reflects God's character and humbly and unquestioningly serves God and does his work. That is the meat of the word. That's what gets you into the kingdom of God. Do the work. Support the work of God with zeal to have this gospel preached. Build the character of Jesus Christ. Do it with zeal and we will become teleos.